Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. Down the line from the US, we have Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent, who's been talking to Terry George, Chief of Staff at the Independent Community Bankers of America. Today, we will be talking about the latest data from UK regulators about the importance of the single market, a look to at Deutsche Bank as it faces a potential $14 billion fine, and a catch-up on the US fallout from the Wells Fargo mis-selling scandal. First, though, to that UK Brexit story. Laura and Martin, you've both been looking at the figures that have just been put out by UK regulators, putting some numbers on how important the single market is for those operators in the City of London, revealing that more than 5,000 firms are basically reliant on single market passports to operate across the EU from a base in London. Martin, put that in a bit of context for us. How does that 5,000 break down? And also, how does it balance out with companies passporting into the UK from elsewhere? Actually, more firms in the rest of Europe rely on passporting to access the UK. Some 8,000 passports have been issued to firms in the rest of Europe to access the UK market. So that could add some weight to those who argue that the rest of the EU27 have as much to lose as the UK does. And the 5,500 breakdown is quite interesting as well because firms are issued passports by directive that covers a certain area of financial services activity. And the most common is the directive for insurance intermediaries. So it's the insurance sector that would be hardest hit. The second most common is the Markets in Financial Instruments Directive, which covers all kinds of investment services, and that's mostly investment banking and capital markets activities. Then there's various others, such as asset managers, payments companies, and also traditional lending, you know, deposit-taking and cross-border lending. So it just really underlines how much disruption there would be in a hard Brexit scenario where firms have to fall back on accessing the EU as if they're based in a third country. Laura, what do you take away from these numbers? I guess you've got to be careful in terms of how you actually read it. In terms of saying that there's a bigger impact for the EU firms than there is for the UK firm just because there are more EU firms using passports, I'd be fairly cautious on that because if you think about it, from the perspective of a firm in the city, they could be using passports to access all of the EU markets and that could be a large portion of their business. From the perspective of the firm in the EU, the UK is just one of the 30 or so markets that they access. Now, for some companies, the UK is one of their biggest markets 
for a lot of companies it's actually a very small portion of their business but I would still say on balance passporting is more important to the UK firms than it is to the EU firms who passport in. If we look at the investment banks there's only a handful of investment banks of scale who actually access the UK through this passporting the largest one being Deutsche Bank and in all likelihood were there to not be passporting into the UK we do expect Deutsche will be asked to set up a subsidiary and that would be a significant change for them and that would probably be a very expensive change for them but if you look at the overall banks who passport in most of them would actually require a relatively minor change if you think about the banks who access the UK through a branch structure, there's almost 80 of them who are EEA branches and they use passporting effectively. There are 76 more banks who are outside the EEA and are still allowed to access the UK through a branch structure without having a subsidiary. If we think about the smaller European banks, it seems fairly likely that they would be allowed to continue to have a branch structure. They would just need to negotiate a deal with the FCA and the PRA as all the other foreign banks did. But it does seem likely most of those smaller banks would be able to continue doing business in a fairly similar manner to how they're doing it now. That's a very thorough analysis of the banking sector, which is probably fair to say the biggest single component of these numbers that we've had light shone on. Interesting, Martin, you mentioned the insurance brokers as kind of the biggest in number. A lot of those brokerage firms are obviously going to be very small. But in terms of actually insurance companies, underwriters, there's an interesting point to be made that actually the numbers there are significantly bigger in terms of numbers of companies passporting into the UK rather than out of the UK. And in many cases, I think they're very big companies, the likes of you know the alliances and the axes of the world coming into the UK from the EU. So it is very much a two-way street, I think, but as Laura points out, a complicated one. Let us move on to our second topic of the day. Deutsche Bank, Martin, you were looking at rumours or suggestions that Deutsche Bank was going to get fined $14 billion for their alleged abuses in the mortgage securities market. How likely is it that they're going to end up having to pay that amount? Not really rumours. There was a leak in the Wall Street Journal that the Department of Justice had submitted a claim of $14 billion to Deutsche to settle their investigation into mis-selling of mortgage securities in the 2005 to 2007 period, so just the years immediately preceding the financial crisis. That was subsequently confirmed by Deutsche in a statement they released in which they firmly pushed back against that number and made it clear that that was an opening gambit from the US Department of Justice and that they had no intention of paying that amount and were planning to submit a much lower amount as a counter proposal. So the negotiations have started, the two sides are quite far apart. In terms of gauging the likelihood of them paying that figure, There's a lot of things to take into account. Some of them are cold, factual analysis of the financials of this, and then a lot of it is in the political arena. A lot of other US banks mainly have settled with the DOJ for exactly the same thing. So you can work out how big their business was in this particular area, the mortgage securities that were sold and subsequently became very toxic. You can work out how many of these securities they issue in that time period and the size of the fine that they paid to the DOJ. And analysts have calculated that the percentage of overall fines paid for this equates to between about 1.8 and about 5.7% of the total amount of business they did. So if you apply those numbers to Deutsche, if you take an average, Deutsche could expect to pay, analysts reckon, about $3.5 billion. If you take the worst case scenario, which I think was Citigroup from memory, then they could be facing more than that. We're talking $4.5, $5 billion. So still nowhere near 
$14 billion. Now, in many cases, previous fines, banks have received an initial figure from the DOJ, which has subsequently they've been able to negotiate it down. Deutsche has taken total provisions of about 5 billion euros. That's not all for this particular area. They've got other investigations into them like Russian trading, which could cost them quite a bit as well. So we don't know how much that 5 billion is for this, but we think that Deutsche had expected to get about 2.5 billion euros with the DOJ settlement. So clearly this is a shock to them. And if it does turn out to be close to $14 billion, it will mean a big increase in the provisions that Deutsche has to take. Now, you add into that the politics. This is an election year in the US. Bank bashing is a very popular sport for politicians all around the world. The Department of Justice is staffed by officials who will have their mandate renewed or they may be replaced after a new administration comes in at the end of the year. So they're looking to get these things done by then to get a big scalp that they can use to get promotion, potentially to higher office. And some people have noticed the very close proximity of the $14 billion figure that Deutsche has been presented with and the 13 billion euro figure that the EU has demanded from Apple. This Apple fine has provoked outrage and fury among politicians and business leaders in the US. So you add all that together and you can see why Deutsche, which, by the way, has very few friends in US regulatory circles. They've had several fines in the US. They were seen as one of the most egregious examples of European banks being very highly leveraged and drawing on the Federal Reserve funds in the crisis. And they've failed the US stress test twice in a row. So lots and lots of reasons why they aren't particularly well viewed in the US and why the US regulators may use this as an opportunity to give them a good bashing. But I think if you look at the cold, hard facts, they can expect this number to come down quite a lot. One final word. If it is far worse than they expect, let's say it's a 10 billion figure or something like that. How damaging would that be to Deutsche? They haven't got the highest capital ratio in the world. Would it push them over the edge and they'd have to go to the market to try and raise capital in a very difficult environment? Well, it is a very difficult environment for them. Their shares are trading at 30% of book value. So they're already very beaten up. They made a very big loss last year. The bank has a market capitalization of only 18 billion euros. So once you're talking about raising 10 billion euros, say, then that's a very big dilution for the other shareholders. And I think it's doable. I think Deutsche is widely expected to have to do a righteousness, which is why its shares are trading down so much. Everyone thinks it is undercapitalized, does need to raise fresh capital, will need to do a rights issue. So the market's waiting for that. But there's a chicken and egg issue here that Deutsche didn't want to raise that capital before doing the settlement with the Department of Justice because, as I understand it, the executives at Deutsche think that that would just have them walking around with a target on their back. They'd just give the Department of Justice a figure to go for and that money would be straight out the door in a settlement for the DOJ. And investors don't want to put money into Deutsche ahead of this settlement because they know they'll just be paying for the fine for the DOJ. So, in a way, a lot hinges on this for Deutsche Bank, which is already in a pretty critical state. Indeed, we will watch that very closely. Now, let's go for our final segment to the US, where our US financial correspondent, Alistair Gray, has been talking to Terry Jord, Chief of Staff at the Independent Community Bankers of America, on the fallout from the Wells Fargo mis-selling scandal. Terry, thanks very much indeed for joining us. I wonder what this tells us about the culture of the US banking industry. 
Well, first of all, I don't think you can put all U.S. banks under one umbrella in terms of culture. I was a community banker for 30 years. I started as a teller and worked my way up to president and CEO of a small community bank. So I worked at the front line from my very youngest days until I was in the C-suite. And so as a young banker, I was trained to listen to the needs of our customers and to offer ways that our community bank could meet their needs. Certainly, we had products and services that we could offer to our customers. But, you know, for example, if a customer said they were concerned about keeping their stamp collection at home, I might suggest that they look at getting a safe deposit box. Or if a student was heading off to college, maybe I would suggest that they could stay in touch with internet banking. But it was never the other way around. Um, In the community banking industry, most community banks don't have sales quotas. They don't push products and services onto customers who don't need them because that's really not the community bank business model. It's really based on relationships. This situation at Wells Fargo stunned community bankers. There are nearly 6,000 community banks across the U.S., and truly it was a stunning revelation that there could be so many employees, first of all, over 5,000 employees that would be pushing products and services on to people that didn't want them or need them, um, but that there could also be accounts that were set up that really didn't even exist or where customers' names were used in order to set up a another type of account in order to meet a sales quota. Well, clearly examples of good and bad practice are in the industry, but why do you think community banks as a whole should be any less likely to have such scandals? Well, because community banks are local. Their um, employees are part of the community. They go to church with their customers. They sit on school boards together. You know, they know that if they do something that will affect the trust that they have with their customers, that it will influence their whole relationship with their community. So because community banks are local, they're generally owned by local people in the community, they wouldn't even think of doing something that might betray that trust. Well, clearly it all went wrong at Wells. Does it not make sense for banks to um, cross-sell a wide range of products? I mean, is it is it not actually quite convenient for customers to have a wide range of products in one place? Absolutely. And community banks have prided themselves on having a full array of products and services for their customers. They do want to be able to provide them with all the products and services that maybe their larger bank competition might be able to offer, but they go about it in a different way rather than pushing a product on a customer that the customer doesn't want or need. They listen for the customer's needs and then they try to fill, you know, what they're looking for. I'll give you an example of what happened. My 80-year-old father lives in Florida and he has an account with Wells Fargo. And when this first came out a couple of weeks ago, I called him and I said, Dad, I know you have an account with Wells Fargo. Um, Is everything okay? Are you checking your statements? And my dad is very tech savvy, especially for an 80-year-old, almost 81 in a couple of weeks. And he said, well, they signed me up for a line of credit. But he said, but I haven't drawn on it, so don't worry about it. And I I said, well, they signed you up for a line of credit? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, did they charge you for it? And he said, yeah, they charged me like $25. And when I saw it on my statement the following month, they reversed it. But, you know, I thought, here is an elderly man who lives alone, 
who only has one source of income, and that's his Social Security, what does he need a line of credit for? So I just wonder how many other people have been victimized. Was, was, was that an example of fraud? I don't know if it was an example of fraud in that, you know, he may have, you know, I'm speculating from what he told me, but he said that Okay. They suggested that they have a line that he have a line of credit in case something happens. I see. Okay. And so and he thought, oh, okay. Well, in case yeah. something happens, I can fall back on that. But he wasn't told that he would be paying for it. Got it. Do you think such problems exist elsewhere in the banking industry among larger institutions? You know, I I'm not sure that I could speak for larger institutions. I think that there is certainly a different culture in the largest institutions. They are more transaction-based rather than relationship-based. But I can speak very confidently about the community banking sector. I have known community bankers all my life and now as a member of staff for the Independent Community Bankers of America, and we represent like I said, nearly 6,000 community banks across the country, that is not their culture. Although they the would head not of, survive. Um, the head of Amalgamated Bank said that yes. all banks should go back and review incentive pay structures because of this. Do you agree? I think that there's many community banks that have nothing to review. Uh, certainly, if there is a bank that is out there that is using sales tactics that result in the customer's needs not being met, then absolutely they should review that. They should never have put those types of policies into place to begin with. What our biggest concern is now, and community bankers that I've talked to, is the regulatory burden that could continue to rain down on them because what happens is you have a situation like the Wells Fargo situation where now the Senate Banking Committee is holding a hearing and they're bringing Wells Fargo and the regulators in to testify. Chairman Henserling on the House Financial Services Committee, the chairman, is also calling for the potential for hearings. And so, of course, now they'll start talking about what went wrong, why weren't the regulators paying attention to so. this. Well, absolutely, and rightly so, but we have seen over the years, we, I can count to many examples where there's been one bank that has betrayed the trust of consumers, and then regulations and laws are passed that impact all banks. It's not like smaller banks are immune from scandals, far from it. Of course, small banks aren't immune from scandals, but by and large, I would be willing to guess that 98%, upwards of 99% of community banks, like I said, they're part of their community, they're local, they're doing the right thing. I used to have a little sign at my desk when I was a banker, and it said there's no right way to do the wrong thing. And community bankers believe that they're part of their community. They rely on the trust and the relationships that they have with their customers in order to be, be successful. And sure, they have products and services. They're in business. Um, they want to make a profit at the end of the day also. But, but they do it a fair and honest way. All right, Terry. Well, thanks so much for joining us. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio, Alistair and his guest in the US, and also thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.